Father, thank you so much for the living hope, Jesus Christ, who has turned our darkness into light, has granted us rescue from death to life. And so, Father, we praise the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, and we thank you for your word to us. We pray now as we turn our attention to the scriptures. I pray, O Lord, that the Holy Spirit will lead our hearts into your truth, into the truth, and that we will respond with uh, accordingly, recognizing that it is your word to us. And we pray, Father, and thank you that you are, you are willing to reveal yourself to us and then lead us and teach us on how to live lives that, bring, uh, that are pleasing to you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just, I'm thankful for the, the row young people who were baptized this morning, that they persisted. It seemed like the evil one was trying to keep them out of the baptismal tank, that uh, one week they weren't well, and then their dad fell and broke seven ribs. Is Tobin here this morning? Brother, we're glad to see you here, and uh, it must be a real joy to see your kids baptized this morning. So it was great that they pressed through and pursued this. I spend a lot of my days either sitting in my study just like shaking my head with the latest thing that I'm reading about the treatment of God's word or go into Pastor Nick, Nick's office and start ranting for a few minutes and we commiserate with each other about, can you, hear, can you imagine what this guy's just said and all that. It, the way God's word is being treated over the last little while is absolutely abominable. I don't know if you've been paying attention or not, but but there's a... There's a, a sauciness and a, an arrogance about people in, and I'm talking about church scene, religious scene, with respect to the authority of God's word. The whole idea that, well, if, you know, I, I don't think Jesus said that. It may be in the Bible, but I don't see it in the red letters, so I don't know if I have to abide by it. Listen, the authority of God's word, it's God's word. Jesus Christ is God. It's God's word. It doesn't have to be red letters for me to abide by it. And, and we're just seeing people. In fact, some of you are here because you've been in other settings where you've seen the erosion of the word of God and you're just like, I can't, I can't abide that any longer. I've got to go find somewhere where that's not happening. You know, here at Calvary, core value is we take God's word seriously. We don't just write that as a slogan. Uh, there's a weight to that. There's a, there's a sense in our pastoral team and our teachers here and our leaders here where this is God's awesome holy word. And, and we take that very seriously. I've not been invited to, to manipulate it or change it or, or give my opinion on it or how I feel about it or, or, or it doesn't meet my felt experience, therefore it doesn't apply. That's, that's, we've not been, puny human beings have not been granted such arrogance over God's word. And so as a result, it, it seems that that perhaps, uh, you know, many people have been suggesting that, well, that's how Jesus handled the scriptures. <laughs> well, he is Jesus. But, but that's, the, like, Jesus, uh, he, he, um, he set aside some things, so I guess we can too. Wait a minute. Did Jesus really do that? And evidently, it appears that some people were suggesting that Jesus had come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. And the only reason I say that is because Jesus in his sermon said, I haven't come to do that, 
So some people must have been claiming that he was. I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament scripture of the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So this morning, I thought it was best for us to hear from Jesus' own lips, Matthew chapter 5, you turn there, on how he handled the scriptures, to give us a guideline of how we should be handling the scriptures, how we should be treating the scriptures. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20, but I just wanted to point out here this morning quickly that, that Jesus said to his, the naysayers, to those who were um, falsely representing him, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I am firmly convinced that whatever was going on at the time that Jesus was preaching this, there was a holy hush over the crowd. Because Jesus, if you understand what Jesus is saying here, is he is saying the religious elite, it's what, it's what mothers and fathers hoped their children would turn out to be. Look at the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. That's my desire for you, that you would grow up to be just like them. This, they were at the very top of the religious food chain. And Jesus is saying that they're going to hell. That's what he said. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven because their righteousness isn't getting them into the kingdom of heaven. That was... Of, of, I don't, you know, it's my opinion, this is not Bible, my opinion is that it was the most shocking statement that Jesus ever made that's recorded. That's, that's my opinion on it. Because this would have been uh, unbelievable to make a statement. The boldness to make that statement, the authority to make that statement is unbelievable. And it certainly has my attention. Does it have yours? It's got my attention. Because I want to know what that righteousness is that enables you to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because if there's a righteousness that doesn't work, I'd like to know what that is so I can avoid it. So the key question this morning is, what did Jesus actually teach and do with regard to the scriptures? Let's, let's set the record straight once and for all this morning, shall we? How did Jesus handle the scriptures? So I would like to share three ideas this morning from the, the text I think are, are found here. Um, and the first is this. The Old Testament has not been abolished. It is carried forth by Jesus. I get that out of verse 17. Do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, we're going to have to mine some key words out of this section this morning. One of them is the word fulfill. What does that really mean? We're going to have to also uh, take a look at the law and what that means and how it relates to us. We're also going to have to look at the term righteousness. So 
those are four or five sermons right there. So I can only really kind of skim it for you. But I, I, think we can, I think we can get some work accomplished here this morning in this matter. So Jesus, notice, he has set up the word fulfill as the opposite of abolish. He's not come to abolish the scriptures. He's come to fulfill them. We're going to have to look at what that word means. And just so we set the parameters here, the law, the prophets, is the term that would be used for the whole of the scriptures, the whole of the scriptures that they had, the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, refers to the Old Testament. Now, so at Jesus' time, when he's referring to the the law, there was in fact um, three parts to the law. There still is, but there was three parts in action at the time Jesus spoke. There was a moral law, there's the judicial law, and there was a ceremonial law. And I'm going to look at each one of them in a few moments a little more in depth to show, to help us. Because we get confused when we confuse the various parts to the law. That's where we get kind of discombobulated into how we relate in a New Testament community context with the law of God's word and what Jesus meant by fulfill. Because the word fulfill actually is a robust word which has a variety of ways of interpreting it depending on which way and which context you're talking about. And we can, we can ferret that out this morning as well. It, it can mean complete, totally accomplished, or it can mean carry forth or ongoing and, and um, uh, to fully explain. So as the Apostle Paul wrote, the law was given to be our schoolmaster. It was added because of sin to show what is right and wrong and also to point us to Jesus Christ. Uh, the prophets called Israel to keep the law as an act of worship. So we have this as the context of, uh, of, of what Jesus is, is delivering to us in this statement, I've, I've not come to abolish but I've come to fulfill. So we want to talk now about in what way did Jesus come to fulfill the scriptures? And what does that mean? What is, that, what is he really talking about? Um, before we, um, we launch totally into that, I think it's important that we note, uh, as Martin Lloyd-Jones nicely put it, everything that is in the law and the prophets culminates in Christ. And he is the fulfillment of them. That's a very important statement. That's why Jesus, when he was walking with the two guys on the road to Emmaus, after the events of the crucifixion, resurrection, and Jesus is now, they're, they're talking about the thing, events that have been happening in Jerusalem, and he walks with them and says that he, he, he starts at the very beginning of the scriptures and points out to them all the places where it, it is directed to him, all that it says about Jesus, because the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. In fact, it's impossible to make any sense of the cross unless you have the Old Testament. So today we have people unhitching themselves from the Old Testament. We have denominations of so-called church denominations unhitching themselves from the Old Testament. Saying it's an inconvenient Older Testament. It says things that we don't really want to say because it, it hurts the sensitivities of this present culture. That's the point. The point of the Old Testament is to point out our transgressions, to point out our sin, to point out that we desperately needed Jesus Christ. That's the point. 
It does bump up against our sensitivities. I don't know if this is the case, but, and I'm not sure when this came to pass, but, but it seems to me that when we started producing just New Testaments, and, and I'm not, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but when we were just producing New Testaments and, and, and people were basically, uh, you know, it was, it's convenient and it's small and it's helpful to just carry around the New Testament, I think we inadvertently might have told people that the Old Testament isn't so important, but the New Testament is really important. So, I, I, I think there's a lot of things that have happened that have moved towards a notion that, that even Jesus doesn't think the Old Testament is all that important. Well, let's just see what he has to say here. In verses 18 and 19, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. How long is that? That's a pretty long time. Until heaven and earth disappear, <clears throat> not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This is where the explanation of how the law applies to us is going to be very important. What has already been accomplished versus what is yet still to be accomplished. No, just pay attention to Jesus' words. And anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Do you, Nick? No way. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, so I would say that, that first, the Old Testament has not been abolished. It's, it's carried forth by Jesus. But second, everything declared in the Old Testament will be accomplished. Listen to Jesus' instruction here and listen to his warning. We take God's word seriously here at Calvary. It's a core essential because I have seen, we have seen, leaders have seen, a little bit is, is taken away from here and a little bit is compromised there and a little bit is stated that isn't so important over here and pretty soon you're not in the same place you once were. Eventually, many have said enough to that and have moved themselves back to, to core basics and said, this is, this is going to be my book. Now, now let's, let's back up the train here and hear what Jesus is really saying. He's saying, not, the, not, not even the smallest letter, you, you know, to his, his critics who were standing around suggesting that he was abolishing the Old Testament or playing loose and free with the Old Testament. He says, here, here's what I want you to know. Not the slightest, the little smallest letter is going, is going to disappear until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter. Not the smallest letter would be the, like an apostrophe in, in Hebrew. It's, it's called Yoda. Not, not the Yoda you're thinking of, okay? Not the green guy. But rather like a little apostrophe, which gives a sound, yah, in Hebrew. Not the smallest letter. Not the least stroke, or the word he's using is serif. Serif is... Um, is like a, a little marking that might adorn a Hebrew character. Um, you know, when you're, when you're writing cursively, uh, particularly women who write cursively usually very nicely. They can't even read my cursive writing, but, 
Women, they have these nice little swirly things going on and just looks really nice. Well, the little adornments that you might put on a letter, little tiny flip or little curve here, whatever, that's a serif. That, that when the copyists were writing things, they would have in their own, their own hand idea the serif. And Jesus is saying, not even, not even a little adornment on a letter in the Hebrew character of the Old Testament will be ignored. And not the least commandment. Remember, people asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? So there were degrees of, of, of hierarchy in the sense of commandments, significance. But Jesus says not even the least commandment uh, to the, the third or fourth degree. I hear people talking about, well, this is a third or fourth theological uh, level of, of importance, so it really doesn't matter. Well, it matters to Jesus, doesn't it? He's, he's, not, he's not saying, oh, a third or fourth, yeah, it doesn't matter. No, he's saying it matters. How committed is Jesus to third and fourth level things in importance? Well, <clears throat> anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments or teaches others, we call the least in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, handlers of God's word. It's absolute, it's unchangeable, the permanence of the Old Testament. The authority that Jesus takes over the Old Testament here is, is undeniable. Creation, the creation account stands as long as the heavens and the earth exist. Unchangeable. Now, some of the confusion, as I said, happens because of the three different parts to the law. Because you walked in here this morning, you said, I'm not expecting a lamb to be sacrificed today. But they were in the Old Testament. So why aren't we sacrificing lambs? If the Old Testament is, is uh, to be scrupulously received and responded to, Remember what Jesus said. Let's not miss what he says. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill, and all of the scriptures will be accomplished. Now, in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the entire ceremonial law was fulfilled, completed in Christ. The, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the rituals, the altar, the, the washings, the incense, all of that was to point people to Jesus, to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So Jesus is pointing out here. Now, Jesus is already, Jesus is there. He's teaching. So this hasn't taken place yet. His resurrection, his burial, his death has not taken place yet. So he's talking about these things yet being accomplished. The ceremonial law was still in vogue. But once Christ came and accomplished all of that, the ceremonial law is gone. That's why we don't sacrifice lambs here. Jesus Christ is the Paschal Lamb. So, that's not disregarding the law, the Old Testament. 
Jesus is the fulfillment, as he said, will be accomplished. Likewise, when the kingdom of God was taken from the nation Israel and given to the church, and you need to probably see that being stated by Jesus, so you'll believe me, Matthew 21, verse 43 Therefore, Jesus is speaking, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And we all know historically that in 70 AD, the temple was crushed by Rome and the judicial system, the theocratic nation of Israel was no more. At this point now, all we have is ethnic Israel, a nation under a secular judicial system. And we, the church, likewise, are a nation within nations, and now we are governed by secular judges, kings, and authorities. The judicial law that applied to the theocratic nation of Israel had been accomplished. Is final, other than for those of us who read Romans chapter 11, realize there's a yet opportunity for Israel, its coming king, Jesus Christ. But right now, so there's no theocratic nation anymore. That's, that's completed. The present Israel is an ethnic Israel. God's Israel is now the church. One last call of repentance to the Jewish nation. So there's no theonomy, there's no, there's no uh, pushing back to force judicial law now on the country of Canada, for instance. But what has not been uh, completed is the moral law of God. So Jesus is presently, was then and is presently carrying forth or fulfilling the moral law of God i.e. the Ten Commandments, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is carrying forth the moral law of God found in the Old Testament scriptures, explained by Jesus' life and explained in the New Testament. The New Testament is an explanation of the moral law of God of the Old Testament. Like I said, the cross makes no sense unless you understand of the wrath of God in the Old Testament towards those who sin and rebel against him and the offer of the sacrifice of the, of the living Christ, the offer of God's lamb, which takes away the sin of the world. You have to build it from the Old Testament to the New Testament where we under, when we understand in the Old Testament, we're undone. What will happen to us? How will we be saved? Because we know that we can't be saved by the law, keeping the law. We know that we can't be saved by the blood of goats and bulls and lambs. We know that we can't be saved by that. We're undone. What, what, how will we be saved? How will God save us? The Old Testament points us to this glorious plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. So sin which we wouldn't understand in the New Testament unless we had the Old Testament, that it's a transgression of the law, that, that those who sin 
having come to know Christ, are practicing lawlessness, as John writes in 1 John 3, teaching us that sin is breaking the law, the moral law of God. So how do grace and law relate now? Well, the grace of God that saves you also enables you to keep the law of Christ. That's what, why John wrote in 1 John 3, 6, that those who continue to sin do not know him because to know him is to be enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin, to turn from sin. <clears throat> so third, the last verse, verse 20, and take note of this. The scriptures teach that there's a righteousness that is the difference between heaven and hell. See, Jesus points out here, there's a righteousness that won't allow you to enter the kingdom of heaven. How many want to know what the righteousness is that does enable you to enter the kingdom of heaven? Anybody out there? Yeah, I want to know that righteousness. I want to experience that righteousness. But first of all, I want you to, to know what Jesus was teaching here. In fact, when he was stating that the righteousness that you must have must surpass the absolute elite the high water mark of religious leaders in Israel at the time. And here's why, here's why they weren't acceptable to God. Here they are judging Jesus and he is now judging them as the rightful judge. A righteousness that surpasses. You know, Pharisee means separatists. They were, they were setting themselves apart. That's the problem. They were setting themselves apart with all of these rituals and rules that were taking place. We want to look at a few of them and help you to see what, what is the, what's the issue here. Because the keeping of the law cannot save you. The law simply reveals how far off the mark we are and how much we need Jesus Christ and points to him. It is through Christ that we are saved. But they had formed their own vision of righteousness. As religions across our world have for, for centuries for millennia, and they were no different. They had produced their own kind of religion. And that's why Jesus made this shocking statement, which I'm sure the disciples, as they were sitting around listening to it, were like, well, how who can be saved then? If they can't be saved, they aren't saved. Who could possibly be saved? So Jesus is pointing them out as an example of what not to be. And, and here it is. Here's the righteousness that doesn't cut it with God. The righteousness that... The righteousness that must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees must first not be self-made. Not be self-made. They used the scriptures, but then turned them into thousands of man-made rules and regulations. They used the scriptures, such as they used the scripture, uh, the commandment with regard to the Sabbath, for instance. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. On that day, you should do no work. Now, that's what God has established. Now, the point of that is that God has set aside, has granted us a day for, to, to set aside from our normal uh, responsibilities for a day of holy contemplation of the awesomeness of God and to worship Him and to give ourselves to Him, to, to get out of the rat race and, and, and relax with God and focus on him. And the Pharisees had 
decided that they needed to define what work actually meant, even though we all know what it means. It means not doing what you normally do for the rest of the week to earn a living. But the Pharisees, in defining work, decided, well, work would be to carry something. That would be work. And then they decided, well, it's impractical. You probably have to carry something. So what should we do? So they did stuff like this. So the scribal law lays down that a burden, to be classified as a burden and therefore sinful in breaking the law, would be food equal to the weight of a dried fig. If you can find some food that's lighter than a dried fig, like maybe a marshmallow, you could carry that around. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Milk enough for one swallow would be okay. Honey enough to put upon a wound. I didn't know you put honey upon a wound. That's new to me. Oil enough to anoint a small member. Water enough to moisten an eye salve. Ink enough to write two letters. You write three, you're going to hell. A man could not lift his child on the Sabbath day. Petty rules and regulations that numbered in the thousands. In fact, the Old Testament calls for one fast per year of God's people. They were fasting two times a week and forcing that on others. If you want to be the high water mark with God, you had to fast twice a week. Rules and regulations, which were generally, which at the time were oral traditions that were handed down. So people had to know, they just had to know what was okay and what wasn't okay. It was an entire burden. Instead of focusing on the living God and worshiping Him, this glorious day that He gave to us, remember, Sabbath was made for man, that we might be able to enjoy the living God, they were so bound up in in, am I breaking the rules and am I breaking the regulations that God had never even given them in the first place? So it was codified eventually in the third century called the Mishnah, which ended up being 63 tractates and 800 English pages of explanation on God's law. And if that wasn't enough, the Mishnah later had commentaries called the Talmud, and the Talmud is, is uh, 12 printed volumes on the Mishnah of the rules and regulations of the law of the, word, of the Word of God. So that they took the Word of God away from the people and made themselves the law. Surpassing righteousness is not self-made. Surpassing righteousness is not self-righteous. They were, um, uh, the Pharisees were complaining because Jesus' disciples were eating from the fields when they got hungry without washing their hands. They weren't abiding by the rituals. The problem with um, the righteousness of the Pharisees is it was self-righteousness. It was righteousness that was mostly external and formal. And so it was based upon how they were 
doing things, how they were externally. And, and Jesus turned to them and called them whitewashed sepulchers. Now, in today's terminology, that's graves with white paint on it. It's still a place of death. Even if you decorate it with, with white paint, it's a place of death. And so he called them whitewashed sepulchers and then looked at them and called them, you brood of vipers. Imagine, Pastor Nick, but people came here and said, you, Rick, and your buddies, your pastor buddies are nothing but a, a group of snakes. So, you know, I said Jesus didn't always say nice things. He said true things, and sometimes they were hard because self-righteousness doesn't cut it with God. It's external, it's formal, and Jesus won't have it. Your righteousness must surpass self-righteousness. And, and the, the, the final description I think that's important is, is righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees is not self-satisfied. I think it's worthy of our time to just turn for a few moments to Luke chapter 18. And we'll get a, another commentary from Jesus. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 I think is very instructive and, and following. Are you there? Luke 18. Verse 9. Listen to this. Listen to every phrase, every word. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. Wow. And looked down on everybody else. That's usually how you can tell when someone's confident in their own self-righteousness, in their own, their own righteousness. Listen, we're, the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees cannot be our own righteousness because all of our good works are as filthy rags until Jesus changes our lives and turns our good works to the praise of his glory. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. That pretty much says it right there. Prayed about himself. You ever prayed about yourself? You think you haven't, but you probably have. You probably have. Be careful. God, I thank you that I am not like other men robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. See, there it is. And give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This Pharisee, who was relying and confident on his own righteousness, didn't even need Jesus. Did you see that? He didn't even need God. He was quite content in his own righteousness and quite congratulatory about it. I'm super glad I'm a really good person. I'm super glad that people think I'm really, really something. 
I, I'm super glad that people invite me to sit in the really important places because of my religious uh, attention. I, I, and, and God, I'm sure you're very glad that you have me as well. Righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees is not self-made and it's not self-righteous and it's not self-satisfied. If you really know Jesus Christ and you have been granted his righteousness as a gift of your salvation, you would never think like this. We, the, those, those who know Jesus Christ and know from the rock from which they've been hewn have nothing but gratitude toward God that he would graciously reach into your life and pull you out of darkness and put you into his marvelous light, not because of anything you have ever done or because of any good in you, but because of his grace to you. That's the righteousness that brings honor to the living God. So in your religion... I ask you and I ask those who are online, in your religion, are you relying on the right thing? Because this is the, this is the difference between heaven and hell. Th this very thing, this, this righteousness that we're talking about makes all the difference between heaven and hell, your eternal destiny. The Apostle Paul writes so well about confirming for us what this righteousness really is in Romans chapter 3. With this, we'll wrap it up. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Listen, but now a righteousness from God. Do you see that? A, right, a righteousness from God, not self-made not self-righteous, not self-satisfied, a righteousness by the grace of God, from God, apart from law, has been made known to whom the law and the prophets testify. The very point of the Old Testament is to point us to a righteousness from God, not our own. The righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. That is the glorious truth of the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious and those all over the world who are forming their own religions decorating it with all kinds of rituals, acting like they know what they're talking about and they're very important, when in fact this righteousness that pleases God can't be made by man. It can't be made by religions. It won't, it's not made because you put a special costume on or wave sensors around with smoke until you're blue in the face. This righteousness is a gift from God. This is what the very word of God says. Apart from law, it's been made known. But it was built and tested, testified from the law, teaching us that this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive 
the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to you so that you are viewed by the Heavenly Father in Christ, perfect in Him. That's the only righteousness that God receives. That's the righteousness that enables us to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the point of righteousness. So our righteousness from the scriptures that surpasses the Pharisees comes from God. It is his righteousness and it's intended to bring him glory alone. We don't boast in the righteousness that we have as if we are something special, that we are something uh, good in, uh, of ourselves. We boast in the grace of God. We bro- boast in Jesus Christ. We boast in his righteousness that has been given to us as a gift, and that's the salvation that we have. So, beloved, be very careful how you handle the scriptures. All of them are intentional by God. There's nothing here that doesn't either point to Jesus fulfilled in him or teach them how to teach us how to live. Help us to understand about sin and the need of salvation through Jesus Christ. There's nothing here that we can depart from and still preserve the truth of the New Testament. It's not possible. So be very, very, if you're a teacher, a Sunday school teacher in a discipling community, sharing the word of God with each other, ministering to your children, how you handle the word of God in this moment that is abusing the word of God is of infinite importance to the destiny of the people you are impacting in your life. Our Father, I pray and thank you for your word. You've given us an incredible treasure. Lord, keep us true to it. Keep the generations to come true to it, oh Lord. Preserve for yourself a witness. Preserve for yourself um, a, 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 a remnant of people, oh God, who are true to, the faith of, uh, true to the faith of Jesus Christ through the word of God, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. My closing thoughts to you this morning would center around being very careful to choose your teacher as well, the things of God. I would be uh, cautious in the areas of who Jesus Christ is and the treatment of the Word of God. We have not been granted the authority to abolish anything in the Word of God or to manipulate things. I would be very careful when I'm hearing people say things like, well, my lived experience doesn't match up with the Word of God. Then, brother or sister, I would say, then your lived experience needs to be reinterpreted. Especially teachers who are using that kind of phraseology to justify changing things in God's Word. Because it is in God's Word that we learn about a righteousness from God unto salvation through Jesus Christ. You mess around with that and you will lose out in the righteousness that God gives through Christ as a gift of salvation. And that is too great a thing to lose. Our Father, we pray this morning for those wrestling and struggling with 
the Word of God and the authority of the Word of God and what they're hearing people say and confusing things and all of that. Lord, we just thank you for your Word. We thank you for its intricacy, yet its understandability. You lead us through the Scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand the ways of God and the heart of God and who Christ is and how salvation is received and granted. Oh, Lord, we thank you for all of that. And we just pray this morning that we will be good handlers of the scriptures as Jesus has commissioned us to be and will and has authorized us to be and has empowered us to be, I pray. And thank you in Jesus' name, amen.